Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. This is episode number 39, The State of the Rough Grouse in Pennsylvania. Today, I am talking with Linda Ordaway, who is a biologist with the Rough Grouse Society, and we are going to talk about just that. What is the current state of the rough grouse in Pennsylvania? This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. One, because the rough grouse is Pennsylvania's state bird. I did multiple book reports as an elementary schooler on Pennsylvania State Bird, the rough grouse. So get ready for a great conversation with Linda coming up right now. What can you tell me about the rough grouse today? We haven't had anyone on our podcast uh, concerning uh, rough grouse or the rough grouse society and that sort of conservation space. So can you give us a little bit of information on the Rough Grouse Society? Sure. Um, we were started in uh, 1961 in Monterey, Virginia, um, by a group of group of hunters that uh, really thought there was, there was something about the rough grouse that sort of made them a jewel and something special, and they felt it important enough to organize a group of like-minded folks to uh, do what we can to Make sure that they're still on the landscape for everybody to to enjoy throughout the into the future. Um, we work with uh, state and local governments, federal governments, um, in developing habitat projects and programs. Um, we'll work with private forest landowners to provide a little bit of advice and some hints um, what they can do on their property for habitat improvement, habitat enhancement, um, not just for grouse, but, you know, just to have that healthy forest on our landscape. Um, and I guess in a nutshell, you know, our little elevator line would be that uh, we work at Uniting Conservationists to Improve Wildlife Habitat and Forest Health. I'm really glad you, you threw in there uh, about it's not just for, you know, rough grouse specifically. Well, that might be the sort of main mission of your group is, you know, as I've found talking to a lot of different organi conservation organizations, you know, it's sort of like that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know, doing a habitat project really helps all kinds of game species and then even non-game species as well. Oh, absolutely. It's all part of, you know, single species management went out in the 70s and people need to recognize it's it's a very fragile system, our forest ecosystems, and too much of one thing outweighs some of the fits, and too little of one thing turns the uh, turns the scale the other way. Um, it's not all, you know, 50% mature forest and 50% young forest. That's not the balance we're looking for when we talk about balance in a forest. You know, we're looking at, uh, some people will tell you, 20% of a forest, 15% of a forested landscape in regenerating forest. 
Um, yes, that provides great habitat, but it also ensures things. When people talk about forest health and resiliency, a lot of times you're like, well, what does that mean? But it's providing that that insurance as much as we can that older forests will always be on the landscape in letting these younger forests then grow to become our older forest with those unique characteristics of a old stands and provide some resiliency to, to some of the forest pests and diseases, both native and uh, non-native that we're aware of right now. And who knows what might be coming in in the next wave. Whenever, whenever we're looking at a forest and we're looking at and trying to determine quality habitat for a rough grouse or maybe not fully the best habitat. I mean, what kind of habitat are we trying to, what are we looking for? What, what indicates like, yes, this is, this would be pretty good habitat for a rough grouse. What, what rough grouse on the east need, um, it's not just strictly young forest. The unique thing about grouse is that they're a resident bird. So they're going to, throughout their annual cycle, grouse will use a relatively new stand, relatively forest stand. They may use a forest stand that's 120, 130 years old for nesting against some of the old stumps or the, the logs and things, um, and every age stand in between. But the biggest thing, that that most important thing that grouse need is that vertical structure. That vertical structure provides cover from avian predators, overhead predators. It provides um, a, a shelter, and it'll also provide, uh, we hope that it provides a food source. And a lot of times that food source might be pretty limited depending on what kind of structure we have um, that, that's in there. And as you look across the, the landscape of Pennsylvania, when you look at or you see pictures of our older growth stands that we have in PA, you usually don't have that vertical structure in there. So you need that sunlight, some kind of break in the canopy to allow the sunlight to hit the ground to reinitiate that seed bank to get that um, vertical vegetative and, and woody structure. And, uh, you know, when we don't have a lot of uh, episodic environment uh, weather events to create that, we need to maybe step in and, and create some of that. That's something that I'm sort of hearing a lot about uh, from a lot of different wildlife biologists that I've been talking to is that basically what we as humans think as pretty, right? When we think of, uh, you know, a state forest or a national forest and we think that sort of postcard view uh, from the ground level, you, know, you see these big trees and this uh, almost barren floor, that's really not good for wildlife. So it, it's sort of that's, the same thing true. with rough grouse. <laughs> That's true. If it's not good for wildlife, it's not good for grouse. You know, um, one of the the biggest things that I think we need to get away from, and it's it's hard to counter, <laughs> hard to change that view, is the term aesthetically pleasing. The term aesthetically pleasing in a forested landscape, in a forest stand, it, we really shouldn't be using that term anymore because depending on who you talk to, that big old stand with nothing but fern underneath it and black cherries and hemlock and some beach, that's not real aesthetically pleasing to someone who's a bird hunter or a deer hunter or 
a trapper or a bird watcher. It's really kind of barren out there. You can see for miles and people are like, oh, this is great deer hunting. The only reason a deer is going through there, going to be in that stand is because he's going from point A to point B. Yeah, I, I'd sort of liken it to, you know, everyone likes, it looks good to the human eye to see a, a perfectly flat, uh, freshly <laughs> cut lawn. And that, yep. it does, it does look good, but there's also nothing living there because right. it's, it, it's all just a monoculture of just one thing. And having that just big, mature forest with, uh, you know, a completely covered canopy and nothing on the, on the floor other than, like you said, maybe ferns. Um, it looks good to us, but there's no wildlife there because there's nothing to support that wildlife. Right. You need layers, and, and you know, layers in a forest, vertical layers in a forest can be very unique with, you know, a bird that enjoys or spends a lot of its time or its breeding time in a mature stand, but they nest 10 feet off the ground, you know, overtopped by trees that are 80 to 100 feet tall. You know, that vertical structure is really, really important. So you mentioned that one of the things that the Rough Grouse Society uh, works to try to do is to improve habitat and, and do some habitat projects. Well, what are some things that they, like, what are some steps that you would take to do a habitat project or, um, you know, and I understand that it's different depending on the area and, and, you know, what's needed in that specific habitat. But, like, what are some – can you give me some examples of some things that the Rough Grouse Society might do? Yeah, yeah. I One of the – to me, one of the uh, biggest things that, that we do and that we can do is um, providing access into a, an area in order to have some commercial timber harvest or other um, silviculture uh, treatments in those areas. So – you know, we've provided um, funding to build a road in order for uh, state workers, and this was in Pennsylvania, in order for our state state game lands guys to be able to access these stands to have these timber harvests. So in that case, we didn't do anything to create habitat direct directly, but indirectly being able to provide the funds to build that road in there in order to have those, those commercial and non-commercial timber done. Um, in that in that respect, we did a lot for habitat there. In fact, one of the sales, um, one of the units has already been sold, and so that's that's great. You know, we're we're seeing progress on on our members' funds. Um, that's that's interesting. I wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't think of the need for access, uh, you know, to do those type of improvements. But that makes a whole lot of sense. If you can't get to attract the land to do the improvements, then Obviously, that improvement's not going to get done. Right. You know, and then that road, there, there's all kinds of possibilities for that road once those harvests are done. Um, they may choose to, to decommission it, and not, not just our game commission, but talking about may do the same thing in the federal, on the Forest Service land or on Army Corps of Engineers land. That may become part of a trail system. Um, it's going to, to give hunters access whether it has a gate on it or not, and they have to use a mountain bike, they might have to walk in, they might be able to drive in. But, um, you know, bird watchers, it, it's wonderful to use a, a a road to be able to go into an area that is really thick with that vertical structure we were talking about and maybe young stands and a mix of, of some older stands and canopy trees in there to be able to, to bird walk 
to be able to walk down through there with your binoculars and always be fighting the, the blackberries or or access or bees and everything else and it's you know it provides a nice vantage point to look up and see a scarlet tanner deer yeah that, that's great uh, so we're you're based in pennsylvania uh i'm based in pennsylvania uh, the first bird that i shot over one of my dogs was a grouse on a property that my family owned in northwestern pa um and we've always, I mean, I can think back and it's back as far as I can remember walking around our property or game lands around our property, uh, you'd always get the crap scared out of you uh, yep. multiple times on that walk by that grouse that, that flushes out uh, so loud. And lately we haven't been hearing the drumming in the spring and we haven't been getting those flushes when we're walking around the woods. So it, could you just sort of talk a little bit on the state of the grouse population in Pennsylvania? Yeah, um, I'm I'm in northwestern PA. I live in, in McKean County in Bradford, and our numbers are still very strong in, in this little, little corner that I have. But there's a couple of reasons why that is. One, we have uh, national forest here, so we don't have any houses in, in that acreage, and we have a very high percentage of our forest forested landscape is owned by private forest industry and the private forest industry they're in the timber business and so they're doing a lot of cutting there's some roads that are for access through there Um, it's open to the public and you know we have private landowners around here that aren't opposed to to managing their, their forest in the correct way so we have this Larger area, you know, it's got some houses around, and yes, there's little towns and things, but it, it's mostly a very, if you look at the map of PA, it's a very forested, contiguous kind of forest region up here. Um, grouse aren't a small woodlot bird. They need those vast forest tracts of these different age classes and different structures, this, this hodgepodge of, of structure. Um, so when you get in, in the southern part of the state where you have urban sprawl, so that's taken up a lot of the the farmer's woodlot and this farmer's woodlot would adjoin to this farmer's woodlot. We we have houses in those areas now. So urban sprawl and lack of forest management or lack of the ability to do forest management or the acceptance by the public are two of the biggest factors for the type of habitat that grouse require and, you know, other wildlife too, but we're talking about just grouse right now. And the other factor <laughs> that comes in, that, that's the biggest piece of the pie. And then over here on the right-hand side of the equation, you have things like, uh, you know, episodic weathering. Do we have a real hard freeze, freeze-up time in the winter with not a lot of uh, snow on the ground? Do we have a lot of rain in the spring? You know, do we have the late, you know, opening day of trout season in PA snowfall that will affect hens sitting on eggs, um, brood time, and we have all these different um, types of diseases that maybe that are on the landscape, and we have to factor in how are those going to affect our grouse populations, and particularly I think people are familiar with uh, West Nile virus as being 
sort of a hot topic lately on um, not just grouse, but on uh, uh, I think there's about seven or eight songbirds that are really adversely affected by by the West Nile virus. That's just another factor that we have to look at, and we really can't control that. So we need to focus on things that we can control, like the management of habitat. And what we found in PA <clears throat> is that birds that are harvested in the fall and that have been tested, a majority of those birds that are testing positive for antibodies for West Nile virus have been in the, the better portions of the grouse region in PA. Um, now, West Nile virus kills during the summer months, so if those birds have made it through to hunting season and have been harvested, they've survived. And in the southern part of the state, when uh, those samples have been um, turned in, blood samples and feather samples from harvested grouse, they don't seem to show the antibodies. But the Center for Disease Control says, hey, they have, there's a pretty high propensity of um, West Nile virus occurring in these areas where your birds aren't showing antibodies in the fall hunting season. And one of the conclusions is is that those birds don't live till um, don't survive the virus through hunting season. Why don't they survive it? They don't have the cover and the habitat and the food resources to be able to, you know, survive when you're sick. Um, they have to travel farther for food, and in doing so, they may be open more to, to predation as opposed to up here in the north where they might not have to travel as far from cover to, to food to, you know, and be as exposed to, to predation. So it's a, West Nile is, a, affect, is affected statewide. It's our grouse. We do know it does kill birds, but uh, in areas where we have good habitat, they seem to survive at least the, the first year of West Nile. There's be very difficult to design a study to figure out what are the impacts of surviving West Nile. Does it affect how many eggs are being laid? You know, the fertilization of those eggs, the ability of the female to, to brood, protect um, those chicks. So, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions with, with West Nile and, and its effect on the birds. But the main thing that we can be doing is, is creating good habitat um, with both winter mass sources and, and summer, summer uh, food sources for them to be able to survive. Now that makes a whole lot of sense that, you know, that, that birds, just like humans or any other animal, uh, given the proper habitat, you know, a, a good, safe, quality place to live is going to make them less susceptible to dying of diseases and things like that. That makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, or or being able to to rebound from it. You know, it doesn't take much. I think it's like they say three uh, percent. If you if you affect the flying ability of a bird by three um, percent, chances are that bird's going to get predated. So, you know, 3% isn't a whole lot. No, I have to ask a question mainly because I've been told this my entire life, and <laughs> I, I want to know if it's true or not. Uh, I'll try someone, to answer it. <laughs> yeah, from someone who's more of an expert than anyone who has ever told me this, but I've always been told that grouse, the 
sort of as far as numbers of grouse go in seven-year cycles from highs to lows. Is that true, or is that just sort of that that sort of myth in the hunting community? Well, it, it is true, depending on where you are. Okay. In, in Pennsylvania, we're not far enough north to really have that, um, you know, the ten-year cycle, the seven-year cycle. But interesting enough, when you look at grouse, our ebbs and flows and ups and downs, you know, we'll have up years and we'll have down years of grouse, even before West Nile was was on the landscape. Um, but it really seems to follow our timber industry and our timber and in, timber industry in the timber market. So, you know, the last big uptake in uh, in timber cutting and the demand for, for hardwoods on the um, on the market was in the 80s. And those, you know, those stands are 20 years old now. So they're starting to, to wane out. So now we're losing that habitat until, you know, timber markets take a boost, take a a, a big upswing again. Um, in areas where we still have a, a market for timber and there's still outlet for it, you know, those stands are being cut again. We have pretty good um, young force on there. So, you know, the cycles are... And they're really kind of tied to the to the timber markets here. Now you can go back and look at individual year things and go, oh yeah, you know that was the the blizzard of such and such, or that was a, you know, when these two counties were totally flooded out in the spring, and that kind of a thing that can affect the population. But you're really looking at the rebound. You know, if there's a real low year, does that does our population rebound? And uh, what we're seeing lately is. We'll take a dive, and we might come back up, but we don't even get up to where that average was in, uh, you know, from like 1967 or 66. So that's where the concern is: is that we still get these big drops and, you know, peaks and valleys in grouse numbers and detectability of grouse numbers, but um, we're never really getting right back up to at least hitting the average, let alone thinking about going above the average from, you know. 50 years ago. So if someone that's listening to this is like me and has some property and they're looking to do some improvement on that property that would maybe help to benefit grouse uh, in their area, what kind of advice would you give me or the, my listeners uh, about some things that they might be able to do on their property? Well, the first thing is I would look at uh, – if your property has a road in it or your your access to it, one of the sort of overlooked at times um, ease of doing things for a property landowner is daylighting those edges of the road, just kind of widening it out. It's also going to let their road dry up a little bit too and usually uh, make it last a lot longer. You don't have to put as much resources into maintaining your access or your drive in there. And do what you can to to get some sunlight on the ground. I mean, I say to people, where do you plant your garden? On the shady side of your house or on the sunny side in order for things to grow? Um, Try to get some sunlight in there. Um, Whether it is a commercial timber sale or, you know, you have a area that maybe has some some dying trees or some dead trees and you can open it up or you had a canopy that, you know, lightning struck a tree and blew it out and you had sunlight there, and you got some regeneration, kind of just try to enhance that. And 
probably one of the best things anybody could do is plant yourself a crab apple tree or two. Get that, get that food on the landscape. That's good. That's so far, uh, some things that we've done recent years, you're telling me I did a good thing. Um, <laughs> That's good. It's, you know, and I looked at people, um, people bought their land and worked to, to own that land because they wanted to enjoy it. They don't want to have to think that every time I have some spare time, I need to go out and do something. You know, enjoy it. So, and don't fight with your land. If, you know, if you had black cherry and, and, if it was a forested land, you had black cherry, beech, and some hemlock and some sugar maple on that property. Don't go out there and start planting oaks. There's a reason why oaks weren't growing there. You know, enhance it. Don't fight with your property. Work with it. So see what you have growing there. You know, staghorn sumac, um, you see it on the roadsides a lot, and it is a huge winter food source for those big red um that horns, I guess you want to call them, that you see on the roadsides with no other no other colors out there on the landscape, that's huge for grouse. I start seeing grouse hitting those uh, sitting on top of those those um, sumac stalks right about the middle of December, and then everything from affiliated woodpeckers to turkeys to downy woodpeckers and chickadees are using those things. So some things that that we look at um, that might be weeds, you know, we look at them. Oh, we got to get rid of that sumac. No, that some of the, the best habitat that you, that you have going for you. So, you know, learn to recognize some of these native shrubs that we have. And if you have them on your property, you might want to open some things up around them to encourage them. Or any apple tree, you know, Pennsylvania is loaded with apple trees just like out in the middle of nowhere. You know, if you find some of those on your property, um, open around them and, and give that apple tree a chance to sort of rejuvenate himself. Apple trees are very long-lived. And uh, we'll put up with a lot of abuse and still be viable if they just get a little bit of help from maybe some sunlight or, you know, if you have a nice black cherry tree, take some of the trees down around it if you if you feel safe doing it and or contract somebody to do that. Just open it up and let those let those cherry seeds fall and sunlight is the best thing to regenerate some black cherry. So now you're you're providing a better food source with opening the uh, area around this black cherry to hopefully uh, produce more black cherries themselves and as they hit the ground and that sunlight is there from opening up around there you'll get some regeneration and so now you're also getting some cover to come into your stand to mix it up a little bit that's that's great information if someone's interested in learning more about the rough grouse society uh, or maybe even joining uh, where could they go or to find that information you can uh, look on our website at www.roughgrousesociety.org. Okay. Well, Linda, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate this. Sure. Thank you, Jason. That was a great conversation for me personally, and hopefully you enjoyed listening to it. I want to thank Linda for coming on. It was great to learn about Pennsylvania's state bird directly from someone who works with them and for them every single day. Uh, Just recently, a couple weeks ago, uh, my father and I, we went to, of all places, Lawrenceville, 
a nice hipster town right outside of, of Pittsburgh, to take in Project Upland's hashtag public grouse film. And while they talked about a bunch of different grouse, there was a pretty strong focus on the rough grouse, and we really enjoyed that film. But one of the best parts of taking in that film for me personally was that the president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society, Ben Jones, was in attendance and said a few words at the beginning and then was nice enough to stick around at the end to talk to some people and I happen to be one of those people. Super down-to-earth guy, born and bred in Pennsylvania, understands the importance of the rough grouse to our state. I mean, come on, it's the state bird. The reason why I really enjoyed this conversation more than anything else was because I have a definite passion for rough grouse. Not necessarily rough grouse hunting because the numbers in the areas that I bird hunt are low, but I don't want to see them gone from the landscape. Like We need to not only support the current population, we need to increase that population. So hearing ways that we can do that as private landowners and as, you know, with in conjunction with state agencies and organizations, I think that is huge and much, much needed. Like you have no idea, uh, you know, this state bird, I remember multiple times in elementary school doing book reports on the rough grouse. I was in love with the rough grouse from a very early age and the rough grouse was the first game bird that I was able to take with my own dog. Uh, it was a little spur of the moment. It just happened to be on our cabin property. Had the dog. She found it. Pointed it. It flew. And luckily for me, um, you know, it flew straight away in a generally open area. So I was able to take it. It was just perfect situation for the two of us to get our first bird and it's a memory that I will never ever forget that really helped jump start upland bird hunting for me and I thank the fact that there's rough grouse out there we need to do more management efforts on public land on private land to increase the numbers a big part of that and the reason why there's lower numbers in the southern portion of the state of Pennsylvania is because of habitat loss. If you remember from the conversation just probably a couple minutes ago with Linda saying that you know vertical structure is what's needed. We need multiple layers of vertical structure. We need to bring that back to our state. Part of the way we can do that is to help eliminate and well, we'll never eliminate, help to slow urban and suburban sprawl. And that's what we're here for. That's the purpose of Conserve the Wild. So my call to action for you today is to help the rough grouse, the state bird of Pennsylvania, as much as you can and in any way you can. If that's donating some money or becoming a member of the Rough Grouse Society, do it. If it is volunteering some time on some habitat projects with the Rough Grouse Society, do it. 
If you want to help us in our mission of easing the pace of urban and suburban sprawl, reach out to me. We got all kinds of ways that we could use some help, and we would appreciate it. I'll talk to you next week. Until then, stay wild. Mm -hmm.